Leviticus 23, surprise, surprise, verse 27, says, Also on the tenth day of this seventh month there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation. So God commands us to be together, to meet together on this day unto you, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. We don't need to do those offerings since Christ became the sacrifice and the all-in-all sacrifice, but this is still to be done as far as afflicting our souls. It's called the fast in the book of Acts. So the New Testament church was indeed still keeping the holy days and this fast, and they understood that the affliction was fasting. You shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make an atonement for you before the eternal your God. Atonement can be broken down to mean at one or come together to be one together, is what the word means. And we are not at one with God at all times, and in fact, we are rarely fully at one with God. Isaiah 59.2 says that our sins separate us from God, and they caused his face to be turned from us. So if there's any doubt as to why we have had trouble being close to God, it was because we were sinful, and God did turn his face from us, and we have been separated from him. So the object today of our lives is to return to closeness with God, to become at one with him. Make no mistake, this world has turned from God and is about to be punished severely until they repent from the heart. Because God desires to be close to his family, to all of his people that he has created on this earth. And he has a plan whereby some will become one with him at the resurrection when Christ returns, others in the millennium, others in the great white throne judgment, and some will never be at one with God ever again. They reject his ways, they reject his paths, his way of thinking, and will never be at one with him. Now it's better for them to die than to live forever at odds with God. Now we have experienced in the church over these last 20-some years God having turned his face and not answering us as we would like to be answered, not being with us to the degree we would like for him to be with us, haven't we? And it's not been a fun or comfortable time. It's been hard. It's been difficult. But this day represents becoming truly at one with him. This day represents the marriage of Christ and his bride. When we truly become at one, and we'll get into that more at a different time. I was going to go into marriage more today, but I, I found that I had far more material than I could cover in one day and have something else planned for the feast, so I didn't want to get into it. I want to go a little different direction today, but we'll try to get to that soon. <clears throat> uh, but it does have to do with this day, to becoming totally, truly one with him in marriage, 
so that there is no variance, no shadow, no difference in our thinking and His. And that's what He would have us to be, and how He wants us to be, to have this mind that was also in Christ Emmanuel, to think just like He thought, to bring every thought into His captivity. That's a tall order. Well, you set aside this day to humble ourselves in fasting, to be willing to give and to serve others, as was brought out in the sermonette, so that our life is not about us, but it's about others, and it's about our bridegroom to come, and how we might serve him in fulfilling his purpose, which is to become at one with the whole world. We have been given opportunity to become at one with him ahead of time, ahead of the rest and then help him bring about that closeness that he so desires from mankind. And let's understand it's been a rocky road for God from A to Z. Mankind rebelled against him from the very beginning, and the closeness that he desired of man when Adam and Eve were first created just blew apart almost immediately. And we've been at odds with God ever since. Hard to achieve, isn't it, that closeness? There are times in every one of our lives when through prayer, through hardship, through trial, through testing or whatever, we get and feel close to God, don't we? And other times when he seems further away, harder to reach, sometimes our prayers don't seem to get there. They don't seem to be answered. At other times, we feel that he is truly hearing us. And I, what's the difference? I know sometimes in prayer I feel that God is really hearing me and I'm connecting. At other times, it's like I'm talking to a dead line, like there's nothing there. I mean, I'm talking, I'm saying the words, but the connection isn't being made. And that will go up and down and vary with us, depending on what's going on in our lives and what our attitudes are, and so on and so forth. But this day is to picture humbling ourselves, fasting, going without food or water. That helps take the pride away, the selfishness away. Or what's, uh, let's see, it's to make, make an atonement before the eternal your God. Verse 29, for whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that day, he shall be cut off from among his people. Now, we are already cut off from God by the sins that we commit daily. And it is only by his constant forgiveness and mercy that we are not completely away from him. But he sets up this time, this day, as a formal time that our sins be forgiven and that we become at one in spirit and mind with him on this day. There are two days in the year that are set apart as the most holy, I think, the most sacrosanct, the days that are more serious than any other days. That would be the Passover and the Day of Atonement. So you're in one of the two most solemn, serious days of the year right here. 
Even on Passover you can make food. But on Day of Atonement we're not to make food or do any kind of work. Period. Whatsoever soul it be that does any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. In other words, if we don't become at one with, close to God, we will be cut off and destroyed from among his people. That's how serious this day is. You cannot take a day more seriously than today. In other words, God is saying if you don't get close and you don't get as close as possible, then you're going to be cut off completely. You can't, what, you can't ride the fence, in other words. We have to choose good or evil, life or death. If we try to walk the fence between this world and God, we will be cut off. And this day signifies the seriousness of that statement. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at evening, from even to even. So at the end of the ninth, all the way through the tenth, until sundown, we are to afflict our souls for the whole day. Now let's go back to Leviticus 16. This was referred to briefly in the sermonette. But I want to pick it up a little bit to make the point that I'm headed for today. Uh, and I'll not read the whole thing, but Aaron had to put on absolute clean white garments of linen. He was to be washed in water before he could approach God. And the whole idea is that God is absolutely clean. God is pure. He never has a wrong thought of any kind. And if man is to approach and be near to God we must come to be the same way. In Revelation 21, when it says that the Father and the Son will come down at the beginning of the millennium to live with men and set up the new Jerusalem here, there will be no filthiness, no drunkenness, no sin of any kind be allowed in their presence. Now, he dwells with sin in this universe, doesn't he? Some have said, well, he's not coming until after the great white throne judgment because he can't live with sin. He already is. It's in his universe. It's in the world that is his footstool. It is among the people he has created. And he is not way off somewhere hiding from that. He is very, very aware of what people are doing on this earth, is he not? And he is about to take some incredible measures to deal with it. He simply will not forever tolerate sin. And when he moves down here full time, within his city, there will be none allowed. There will still be whoremongers and adulterers and liars and thieves on the outside until it's all cleaned up. But ultimately, he will clean it up. There will be no sinners left alive.
save maybe Satan and his demons, who will probably be bound forever in a place of darkness where there will be no consciousness of them, completely put away. There are those who think that he'll have judgment and maybe be killed. There are others who think he'll be uh, forgiven and be back in God's kingdom. I don't know. By what we see in the scriptures, we don't need to spend time concerned with what will happen to Satan ultimately. That is God's judgment. We need to be concerned with what happens to each other with the creation God has put here. Satan is way beyond our judgment or our ability to know exactly what has transpired between him and God. We need to have our mind away from Satan, not on him, not on the things he's doing, but on what God is doing and what his holy angels are doing with us. Anyway, to come before God, Aaron had to be absolutely cleansed. He had to even offer an offering for his own sin before he could come and do this offering on the Day of Atonement, which we're about to address. I'll pick it up in verse 7, once he's got himself cleansed, and he says, He shall take the two goats that were set aside and present them before the Eternal at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So they were to be brought right to the forefront, in front of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Eternal and the other lot for the Azazel or the scapegoat. So... It had to be determined which goat represented what. And I think that that is very important in this story. God is trying to determine right now who it will be that will be the bride of Christ. You may have two people, like these two goats. Which will, way will it go? How will the judgment be made? All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So none of us truly qualify unless our sins are completely forgiven, do we? That's where God's grace and mercy have to come in and the sacrifice of Christ. Because none of us would make it. But, he says, we can. But God has to make those judgments. I'll keep your finger there for a moment. Go back to Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5, verse 21. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the eternal, and he ponders all his goings. He has to think about, watch, ponder, consider all our goings, all our doings. Is it toward God's way, or is it toward this world and Satan's way? Which way is our heart going to go? Which way will he cast the lot? Will he put us in eternal life or into the lake of fire? He has to make those determinations. Proverbs 21, verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the eternal ponders the hearts. That's the way it's been in the church the last 20-some years. Every man is righteous in his own eyes. 
Every man's thinking is right in his own eyes. They all lean to their own understanding, as it says of the period of the judges in Israel. No one will look. We can't all look. We don't have one leader. Our king is dead. Our counselor has perished. We have to find our way. And God's watching and pondering our hearts. But our own way of thinking seems right to us. Otherwise, it wouldn't be our thinking. And if we thought it was wrong, we'd change it, wouldn't we? So the way we think, we think is right. Until somebody shows us that we're thinking wrongly. And God tells us that we should be seeking out in this time of spiritual famine to find those who can tell us the error in our ways and our thinking. Because on our own, we will become complacent and we will think everything we know and think is okay because human beings are wont to do that. So he says, that there have to be those who will stand and tell God's people their sins and how their thinking is wrong. In the South, it's known as stinking thinking, in case you misunderstand what I'm saying here. We have to understand that our thinking sometimes is stinking and that it needs to be changed. But we are so vain and so self-centered that we figure, if we think it, it must be right. Unless we have lots of self-doubt, which some do. And some can't figure their thinking out at all because they think everything they think is wrong. So you have both sides of the spectrum. It works both ways. No, it doesn't matter. If we're insecure and we don't think any of our thinking's right, then we need to go to God's Word and find out how He thinks. And if we think that all of our thinking is okay because we're so full of pride and ego ourselves, then what do we need to do? Same thing. Go to God's Word and see what He says. So don't trust your own thinking, whether you think it good or whether you think it bad. God's thinking we can trust. So what does he do? He sits back and ponders our thinking to see if we'll get in line with his and become at one with him in the way that he thinks and acts. That's what we're here for. Chapter 24, verse 12. If you say, Behold, we knew it not, does not he that ponders the heart consider it? And he that keeps your soul, does not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? We can't hide from God. He does ponder our thinking. He sees. He knows. And he will make the judgments. It will be taken out of our hands. America is having it taken out of its hands. We are watching the beginnings of the death throes of this nation. It will never, it can never be again what we once knew, what we thought was normal for America. It will never, ever return to that again. It's over. It's done. Finished. We've already created the monster that will destroy us. And that monster is our sin and our turning from God.
and then living selfishly and greedily, lustfully, carnally, the way of Satan and man. Now, if you thought I was going to say easy credit, I wasn't. That is not what caused this problem. And it isn't our leaders only that caused this problem. Our leaders that we have in Washington only reflect the people they came from. The people are full of lust and greed and lies and cheating and selfishness and greed. And its leaders are the same way. So if we try to shift the blame on Washington or New York, we're thinking up, barking up the wrong tree. No, it was our carnal human nature that allowed us to be led along Satan's path of greed and grabbing on to that easy credit that was being offered. Yes, those people are against us and want to destroy us and essentially are. But let's never forget our culpability in the matter. We are guilty. God is punishing the whole nation. If we were a righteous nation, God would just punish the leaders, right? But we're not. We are not like God. We are not at one with Him. This whole nation needs a day of atonement badly. And we can be thankful that we are sitting here today with empty tummies, dry throats and mouths, and maybe getting a dull headache at that, who knows, and not feeling too well, and wishing he'd shut up so we could go home and lay down and maybe go to sleep. No, this is a holy convocation. This is a time when God said, you must be together. You must consider these things. He is considering them. We've already read that, three scriptures. But he's pondering our hearts, brethren. He wants to know. He needs to know. He has to know which way our thoughts are going and where we're going to wind up. Because he wants a holy, righteous people. And we are far from it. So they cast lots over those goats to determine which God would want to represent Christ and which God would want to represent Satan. And he's doing the exact same thing with us. Who represents who? He shall take the two goats and present them before the eternal in front of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots, verse 8, upon the two goats, one lot for the eternal and the other for the scapegoat, or the Azazel. That means also departure, or as one uh, source put it, one who went himself, went off to himself. That goat is turned out into the wilderness, alone. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the eternals fell and offer him for a sin offering. It'll be killed. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the Azazel shall be presented alive before the eternal to make an atonement with him and to let him go for an Azazel or a departure into the wilderness. So they'll get together and God will make a judgment on Satan. And then he's going to be sent into the wilderness alone. 
Now, we know that lasts for at least a thousand years based on Revelation 20. He's bound a thousand years. Now, what happens after that is neither here nor there to you and me. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. So he has to have his own sacrifice. Well, let's skip down to verse 15. He does some more offerings and cleansings. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil. So in the veil of the tabernacle, that blood was to be brought in. It represents the blood of Christ, our Savior, in this particular symbolism that is represented today. And do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So Christ's blood represents our sins put before the mercy seat of God. And he shall make an atonement or an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel. There you have it. This day is here because of our uncleanness as a nation and as a spiritual body because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if we don't have forgiveness, we're doomed. The, the, the penalty of sin is death. No ins and outs about it. And because of their transgressions and all their sins, and so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. God can't stand uncleanness in mind or body. And he has to have it cleaned up to coexist with it. That's why his face is turned from us, and he cannot bear to look upon us. So we have some work to do so that his face will turn back. Uh, let's see, verse 20, And when he has made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. So Christ's sacrifice is there for the ministry, for the people themselves in the congregation, for all of us as human beings, we have to have it. Once that is put in order, then in verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a timely man into the wilderness. Fit men means timely. He's there at the right time to do the job when it needs to be done. Satan has been allowed to rule this world and will rule it now for a few more years. And he'll rule it even more in the next few years than he has in the past 6,000. And then in a timely fashion, Christ will send him into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. So he bears the responsibility ultimately for our sin. He is the one who tempted Adam and Eve. He is the one who's caused all of us to sin ever since, taking advantage of our human nature. Once we became infected with the mind, the attitude, the thought processes of Satan, from Adam and Eve down, we've been infected ever since. 
He is the prince of the power of the air and broadcasts his mind, his mentality through the air. And we have thoughts that go through our minds that are ungodly thoughts. And he is the source of those. So they will be pronounced upon him. Not the penalty. The penalty is death. And the live goat was killed, the one goat was killed, so that those sins might be covered, be washed away. But this one is going to bear the iniquity, the guilt, for tempting us and causing us to sin. And he isn't killed. He will bear that iniquity. Now, Satan was going to be forgiven. He would have to die, or Christ would have to die for him. Sin can only be removed by blood. And the only blood that is capable and honorable and great enough to remove sin is Christ's blood. It's the only blood that can remove it, or you die for your own. In other words, your blood is shed for your own sin, and there is no resurrection and no life. Penalty is death. His sin, I mean, his blood covers our sin so that we might live. But if I were judged on my own merit for the kind of life I have lived without propitiation of the blood of Christ, I'm a dead man. Gone. End story. As soon as this physical life ends, no more me. It's all over. Because my blood would pay for my own sin. Now, I'm thankful I have a Savior whose life and whose blood is worth far more than mine so that my sins can be forgiven and washed away and I can live. What an incredible thing that we can understand this, that there was a goat that died for us, representing Christ, and one who bears the guilt of our sins, who is turned out into the wilderness alone. Solitary confinement. Verse 29, And this shall be a statute forever to you, that on the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls, and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourns among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, <laughs> that you may be clean from all your sins before the eternal. So this is the day, seventh month, tenth day, that this was to be enacted out in ancient times with the actual goats, so that we might be absolutely cleansed and clean before God. It shall be a Sabbath of rest to you, and you shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. And the priest whom he shall anoint and whom he shall consecrate the minister in the priest's office in his father's stead shall make the atonement and shall put on the linen clothes, even the holy garments. We're told to put on our holy garments, our wedding clothes, Isaiah 52, uh, Revelation 19, other places. And he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, Verse 34, And this shall be an everlasting statute to you to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. 
So this day pictures us being completely clean before God. The shed blood of Christ wiping away all sin. So today, as a formal declaration that we are clean before God if we are afflicting our souls and fasting and humbling ourselves. It's as clean as you get in this life today. All our sin, gone. We picture this again at Passover, the actual death of Christ, his blood shed as the Passover lamb. But I guess we need it twice a year, don't we? But you see, there's a difference in the meaning. When Christ's blood is shed at Passover, the beginning of the Holy Day season, picturing the circle of God's uh, Holy Days to picture His plan of salvation, it is only the beginning. It is a beginning of sacrifice for sin so that we might be preserved out of it. It is followed by seven days of unleavened bread, which picture us continuing to put sin out of our lives, once that sacrifice is offered, we have not become perfect, have we? Not one of us has walked out of the Passover service and then been clean from then on, have we? Sometimes we think a wrong thought even during Passover. Sometimes it's right after it's over. Sometimes it's the next day. Some of you may go a month, I don't know. I really rather doubt it. Some vanity, some ego, some pride, some something will catch us, some putting down of somebody else so quickly. It comes so easily. So see, Passover is only the beginning of the process, and the seven days afterwards show that it is a process that is ongoing from there on. Now this day picture something, in one sense, far greater. And that is, it pictures the time of total, unending cleansing. It pictures the time of the resurrection and the marriage to Christ when we become totally at one with Him. No division, no different thought, one with Him. And from that moment on, on, we will never, ever sin again. So in one sense, that makes this even holier than Passover. That is the beginning of the process. This day represents the finishing of the process. When His blood will no longer again ever have to apply to you and me. Because we will never, ever sin again from the time we become at one with the marriage of the Lamb. Now that makes this day pretty pivotal. It's not just something to get past in order to get to the Feast of Tabernacles when we can eat, drink, and be merry. It is something that is so important in the plan of God that He makes a separation between those who will be at one with Christ and those who will follow the devil into the wilderness. Now, I made a statement quickly in saying that this nation will never again be the same, and it won't. Whether this is the final big resounding thudding crash, I'm not sure. 
it might go down some and even out for a month or two or three or whatever, and then finally crash. But I, I can certainly say it's leaning outward a whole lot faster now than it was and gaining momentum as it falls. And the whole world economic situation is there. But there's a separation being made. And 90% of God's people are going to go the wrong way. This nation is going to fall, but Satan's kingdom is not going to fall right away. We need to be sure we understand the distinction. This nation is doomed. It's over. Going into captivity. We talked about that in Deuteronomy 28, not over a week ago. Well, ten days ago, I guess now. The trumpets. But Satan's system does not end here as this nation crashes. When this nation is gone, finished, then they're going to have a new world order and a beginning of what they will term a millennium of peace. They will come up with a new currency. They will come up with a world order where everybody agrees because as the markets crash now, everyone on earth is going to feel this. It isn't just an American problem. They're all tied so much to us that when we go, their economies are going with it. Their stock markets are going down. They will sit out in the ship lanes and on their ships and cry and wail because there's no American consumer left to buy their goods anymore. So it's going to affect the whole world. But Satan and those whom he is directing as human beings on this earth have come up with a plan that is going to make these desperate people think it is going to be a shining light of godliness. And they will accept its leaders as gods and do anything they say. As I've said before, I believe they will probably do a hologram or whatever, and they'll have a Jesus descending to this earth. And he will have all the answers to everything. It is going to be so powerful. I don't know exactly what form they'll do it in, and it really doesn't matter. But we need to understand that it's coming, and it is going to come in such power at a time when the earth is in such desperation that they will think it's the second coming. It will all be the final great deception of Satan. And they'll think it's the Savior come back. It is going to be so powerful that 90% of the church will believe it. Nine out of ten people who are supposedly converted members of God's church, will go that way. Can you imagine anything that compelling, that impelling, that powerful? But 90% of the church will choose the wrong. Satan is more powerful than we can imagine. And we need to stay away from him. And anything that smacks of him, This is going to happen very suddenly to this country, and I think the beginnings of it are here. 
And then we're going to see Satan's way. But the, at the right moment, the timely man will send him packing and we'll have the true millennium of the real God come down. And that's what we're looking forward to. And at that time, we will be a part of the wedding. If we take the right paths, make the right choices, if our hearts are where they ought to be, we'll be part of the bride of Christ and live in absolute happiness and peace. No more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more hurt forevermore. And be totally clean. It's hard to imagine being totally clean when we have been, our minds so cluttered with the garbage of this world and of Satan's way of thinking and selfishness and vanity. It's hard to imagine being completely clean and never having a wrong thought of any kind ever again. We've become used to it, haven't we? Sins that we have come to learn to accept. They're not acceptable to God. He can't stand any uncleanness and thought. Not any. And he won't live with it. He'll live with it a time while he works on it. But there comes a point in our lives where we either be at one with him or we're going to be cut off and destroyed. There's no in-between. You'll live or you'll die. That's it. So it's a serious time that's coming. I want to go to Malachi 3, verse 14, because there's a little instruction here that could do us really well if we will follow it. Matthew, Malachi 3, verse 14 well, it's a, uh, yeah, let's start in 14. You have said, it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? His ways, his statutes, his laws, he mentions tithing specifically here as a key factor in the, uh, in the context. That's the ordinance referred to in verse 7. So he's referring back to that, but it shows where our heart is. He says, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully or it's been such a burden to obey the eternal of hosts? And now we call the proud happy, yea, they that work wickedness are set up, yes, they that tempt God are even delivered. We accept people as they are. We accept each other as we are. We accept ourselves as we are instead of realizing how much we need to change. But in our pride, our vanity, our ego, we accept a certain amount. They're in trouble if they're that way. We are in trouble if we're that way. Verse 16, Then they that feared the Eternal spoke often one to another, and the Eternal heard. So we have determined ourselves what for ourselves, we will do what we will not do, what we will overcome, what we will not overcome, which sins we can afford to get rid of and which ones we like and we want to keep, and our vanity. But God says there's a way out. 
If we will fear God, we will speak often to each other. We'll talk about these things. We'll discuss them. We'll help one another. We won't be selfish, but we will get together and discuss God's way. So God hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the eternal and that thought upon his name. We need to be thinking about God and about God's ways and what he wants us to do. Not thinking about this world and its entertainments and its things that it has that are appealing to us. Those things are going away. They're going away very shortly now. And all that will be left will be our relationship with God. Do we have one? How good is it? How strong is it? How much are we at one with him? Is he considering you or me to be a part of his bride? Or is he saying, I don't know, I've pondered that one's hard for quite a while, and looks like it's kind of headed south, going down. Or will he ponder your heart and say, well, there's one that's kind of recovering, looks like he may make it after all. You know, it's, it's up and down with us, isn't it? And God has to think about us and watch us over a period of time and see which way we're going. Are we allowing a little root of bitterness to get into us from whatever source or cause or reason? Or are we letting a little twig of vanity begin to grow, thinking we're more important than we ought to be? Or a root of bitterness because we're not being recognized and accepted and, and raised up in whatever way we might want to be? Are we letting personality get into some things and let us become frustrated and bitter? Or are we repenting and esteeming others higher and better than ourselves and being forgiving and loving and kind and gentle and not holding grudges? But God has to, he has to sort that out to determine which way our heart is going. And it's not an easy judgment for him. Because Satan works on us, this world works on us, and our human nature is there. And sometimes we respond to our nature more, and sometimes we respond to God more. And he has to, well, what, who's, will the real person stand up? What have I got here? Have I got somebody that will be faithful to me all my forever? Or somebody that's going to be wishy-washy, willy-nilly? Let's make no mistake about it. I want to go to 1 Corinthians 5. This just came to mind. 1 Corinthians 5. There's an absolute outright statement from God. Here's where they had a sin in the congregation. Verse 7, Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Somebody in the church does something wrong to us. Do we seek vengeance? Do we seek payment? Do we seek our ego or our face-saving or whatever? Or would we rather be defrauded for the sake of the other person? No, you do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Now, he makes a plain statement here. Know you not 
that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you know this, he says? A lot will be cast by God on you and on me. And the unrighteous will not be in the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Don't think you can do certain things and squeak through. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, or homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. People who live that kind of life will not be in the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the eternal Jesus and by the, or Emmanuel, I should say, and by the Spirit of our God. We may have been those things. If we continue with that kind of thinking and acting, we'll not be there. But God says, we were that way, but we have to change. If we continue, we'll not be there. And he says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It'll be a minority. I believe that. All Israel shall be saved, Romans 11. God is going to manage to save us out of this, most of us, one way or another. We'll make it. But we've got to hearken to him and have our name put in the book of remembrance. Verse 17 of Malachi 3, And they shall be mine, says the Eternal of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serves him. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves God and him that serves him not. God is going to make it very clear when he makes up his jewels, when he passes out the crowns. These are in, those are out. Then we'll know for sure who serves God and who doesn't, won't we? Be no doubt about it. Decision will be made. These are in, those are out. So this needs to be seriously on our minds. And if there's any time in the history of the world that we need to be at one with God, it is now. We are seeing the beginning of the end. Finally, it is here and it is upon us. The new world order is making its move. Satan is making his move. And the first part of that move is to destroy Israel. God has always worked through Israel. Satan has worked through the Gentiles. And Satan is going to cause warfare to occur, and God is going to be behind it, that will cause Israel to be destroyed. And then he will use the Gentile nations to set up his millennium on the earth. Now, that's speaking of physical people. Uh, God looks at it differently once we're part of spiritual Jewry. Once we are part of his church, then we are not Israel or Gentile anymore. We're all one together. But I'm talking about the physical nations. God has used Israel, chose them out of all, to set a physical example and hopefully a spiritual example, and they didn't. So he divorced her and now started 
a New Testament church on new promises, better promises of eternal life. And we have accepted that, haven't we? We're here because we've accepted that. Now it's time to get on with it because time is about gone. God has given space to repent, brethren. From the time Herbert Armstrong died and the church went satanic under the Tkachas and Raider and all those people, we've had space to repent. And most have not been. Most have just been going on as if nothing happened and blaming everybody else for the problem. But the space, the opportunity, the time to repent is almost done. We're talking about getting down to brass tacks and seriousness here and dealing with ourselves. And this day pictures that time when you and I will be absolutely pure and clean, sinless in every respect before God and our husband. And he will accept us. Absolute, clean, white garments of righteousness. That's what this day is all about. Now, it is very clear in Scripture that we will be known as his disciples by how we treat each other. And it's very clear, I think, in, in the Matthew 24 or 25, that how we treat each other is how he will make the judgment on whether we love him and are his disciples or not. When did we see him naked or blind or hungry or whatever? has to do with us. Will we take care of one another as things get bad? Will we share our food with each other? Will we give? Will we do what's necessary to help one another? And are we doing it already today? Let's understand that this day means at one month. I want to go to, uh, well, let's go to First John 1, first of all. We're not supposed to be mixing with the world. It says that they'll think it's strange that we don't go to the same excess of riot that they do. And they'll brand us as weird and odd and different. And indeed, that must have been happening because the apostle had to write it, didn't he? But they will think you that way if you don't go and party with them. And he was saying that some of you haven't been partying with them, obviously, and they think you're weird. Now, if you go party with them, they'll think you're one of them. Now, God is going to have to make a judgment. Is that person with them or with me? Looks to me like they're with them quite a bit. Yeah, in fact, quite a bit. How often are they with me? 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, That which we have seen and heard declare we to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. This is about fellowship together in the church. Apostle John writing this. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Emmanuel. That's where our real fellowship is. First and foremost, above everything. 
And these things do we write you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we've heard of him, and declare to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now there's some darkness in me. There's some darkness in you. There is no darkness in God. None. And we're supposed to be fellowshipping with him. Now, when you're friends with somebody, don't you need to think a lot alike in order to be friendly and enjoy each other's company? If we're totally different and don't think alike, how can we be friends? How can we enjoy each other's company? We can't. And it's that way with God. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now, we're to see no evil, hear no evil, and do no evil. And yet, if we're mixing with evil people, I mean, they may be nice, but they're not going God's way, and we're fellowshipping with them, is something right or wrong here? We say that we fellowship with him and walk in darkness, or with those that are in darkness, we lie. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Our fellowship is with, the, is with God first and with each other. That's where our fellowship is. John is establishing that. It's not somewhere else. 1 John 2, verse 15. Let's see if I'm getting the right meaning out of this. Here's a plain statement. Love not the world... Neither the things that are in the world. We're not to love this culture, this society, this world around us, and we're not to love the things that are in it. That, those things that it produces, those things that define it. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now there's a struggle. A struggle created by this verse right here. A struggle in every one of us because it's a part of our nature to like some of the things of this world and some of the people of this world. So it creates a spiritual struggle when we also appreciate and want the things of God. And you can't serve two masters. Christ said you can't do it. You cannot serve two masters. You will either love one and hate the other or vice versa. You'll go one way or the other. So he's pondering our hearts, seeing which way we're going to go. Where are we going to wind up? Couldn't the decision be clear-cut for him? I would like to be in the position, brethren, where God would look down and say, no question about Daryl. I know which way he's going to go. Wouldn't it be nice to have him say it of you and of me, like he did Abraham, now I know. I would hate to be one of those last few where he's, you know, he's got all 144,000 except for the last 15, 20, 30, and he's got maybe 60 candidates for the last 30 spots in the bride. And I wouldn't want to be one of those. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. You know? Hmm. Boy, that's tough. Him or him? Her or her? 
wouldn't want to be in that position. I would like to be solidly on God's side. So I know, He knows, that I'll be there. Unfortunately, He's still having to ponder my heart and yours. Because we don't always think the way we ought to. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. Now he said then that it was the last time, and the Antichrist would soon appear, and indeed already was in some ways. Now if Paul wrote that 2,000 years, or John I mean, wrote that 2,000 years ago, how much truer is it today? We see the final cataclysm at the doorstep. We see the wealth, our money eroding before our very eyes. We see the collapse coming. And this is the final collapse at the end of the age before Satan ushers in his new world order. So time is short. If it was short then for them who were living and ended with their lifetime, it's short for ours because most Americans' lives are going to end very soon now. 90% will die. Nine out of ten Americans will die. Now, is it time to separate from that or time to be part of it? Which way are you going to go? Romans 12, verse 2. Here's what is advised by Paul. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, not dead, living, holy, acceptable to God. There's no darkness in him at all, remember, and he wants us to be absolutely pristine clean before him. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world. Don't be like it. Don't accept its peer pressure and think like it and act like it. But be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So God wants us to be being transformed, not just going down the way the world is going, thinking the way it thinks. Let's go to James 4. James 4. Why do you have wars and fightings among you? Why have we had dissension in the church? Why have we had people believing different things and different ideas and doctrines and fighting among themselves? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members, our selfishness, our ego, our pride, our thinking that our minds are the best? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and can obtain. You have fight and war, that, and you ha yet you have not because you ask not. We're murdering each other spiritually. Not physically here. You adulterers and adulteresses. Anybody who weakens the faith of others, causes them to be at all unfaithful to God in any way, is committing adultery. We tend to think of adultery as something just between two human beings in a physical, sexual relationship. No, adultery is far bigger than that. 
If we cause anybody in any way to be unfaithful to God in their way of thinking and acting, we are committing adultery. And if we go to this world in any way and are friends with this world, we are committing adultery against God. That's what he says in Ezekiel 16 and other places. We go to our lovers of the world instead of to God. It makes it very plain. Know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity or an enemy of God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Can you put it in any clearer words than that? If we are a friend of this world, God considers us his enemy. Now, I, that doesn't mean just people we associate with. It means being friends with its music, its entertainment, its greed, its materiality, its ego, its self-fulfillment. It means everything that is satanic and of the world that is not of God and is not clean and pure is what it means. There is not one percent of the music that is composed and played or sung in this world today that is acceptable to God. Not one percent of it. I think I could rest and stand on that. It's based on ego and self and lust and greed and vanity. And it doesn't matter the genre of the music, whether it's country or rock and roll or rhythm and blues or even classical has gotten very bizarre. But most of what is put out there is about the carnal appetites of this world. Me, myself, and I, what I want to do, what kind of sins I want to have to have a good time, or however you want to term it. Now, the beat of some of it appeals to one more than to another, depending on what type of music it is. But the message is the same in all of them. The message is the same. It's about pride. It's about ego and self. Are we friends of this world? If we are, we're the enemy of God. It's that simple. We have some changes to make, brethren. We're here today. And I don't want us to be here as hypocrites. We're here today to picture being the absolutely pristine, clean, beautiful bride of Christ with no sin. And if we tolerate sin in our minds and in our lives, and there's a certain amount of hypocrisy and self-righteousness involved. We have to change these things. We have to become at one with God, not at all one with this world. Do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? No, it's true. 
the human mind and spirit lusts to envy. It goes every wrong direction. But he gives more grace wherever he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we want to have God's grace and mercy, we have to humble ourselves. And not be proud and egocentric like this world is. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I don't want in any way to attract Satan. I don't want to be curious about him and his demons. I want to put them as far from me as possible by getting as close to God as I possibly can so that Satan can't stand me and, re and leaves. God, I mean Satan, doesn't like righteousness. He can't stand the light of righteousness. So we need not worry about Satan if we will just simply get close to God. Satan's the least of our concerns if we get close to God because he will flee from us. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's the key. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, or that serve two masters, including this world. Be afflicted, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Eternal, and He shall lift you up. God will lift us up as the bride of Christ if we will make these changes. We're here to symbolize this very day being the bride of Christ. So God wants us to think about being clean and pure and humble and meek, serving and giving and loving. That's what we're here to do. And become at one with him, not one with this world around us. Let's uh, begin to wrap this up. I'll do another little series of, of, of scriptures here. <laughs> Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. Now I beseech you, brethren, verse 10, by the name of Emmanuel, that you all speak the same thing. It is Paul's judgment and he invokes the name of our Savior here. So this has been raised to the level of Scripture. Here's something we're being told by a valid apostle to do with Christ's approval. You all speak the same thing. It is our goal, it is our purpose to all believe and speak the same thing. If we entertain ideas of being a maverick or a wildcat or I'll think what I want to think, we're contrary to Scripture. We're all to come to think it is a goal, it is a purpose. Now, it is not accomplished, but it should be our purpose to all speak the same thing 
and that there be no divisions among you. None thinking this, where some are thinking this way, some are thinking that way, some are thinking a different way. There should be no divisions among us. That you be perfectly joined together in the same mind. Notice how he put that. Perfectly joined together in the same mind. That is a goal and a purpose for us today. To come to the point we all think alike do the same things. He wants a bride that is perfectly joined together like a puzzle that has been put together with every piece in place to form a perfect picture. That's what he wants. Now, if there are problems and we're not perfectly fit together, you put puzzles together. Sometimes you'll try a piece several different places. It doesn't quite fit doesn't all go together the way it ought to. So you keep trying until you've, ah, there's where it perfectly fits. There's where it goes. Put it there. Perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment, so that we're making the same judgments, the same understanding, perfectly joined together. Do we have work left to do. Are we going to ignore that and say, well, I'll think what I want to think, you think what you want to think. That is not the righteous solution to the problem. The righteous solution to the problem is to get together and speak of these things and come to understand the same way. That's what God would have us to do. This is a day of atonement at one minute so that it's one mind, one thought, one purpose, one goal, one understanding, perfectly joined together. That is the goal and the purpose. Now, I'm not going to rail on us all because we're not perfectly there. I am going to encourage us all to take the positive steps needed to arrive there. We don't need to feel beat down and discouraged because we're not what we ought to be today. We need to look at the meaning of the day and resolve to become what we ought to be. When you recognize sin, when you recognize fault, when you recognize failing, you've got two ways to go. You can either get discouraged and say, oh, ha, forget it. What's the use? I'll never make it. We can go that route. Or we can say, I need to examine what needs to be done to fix this and then get busy fixing it. Wouldn't all you fellows be upset if your wife looked at the house in the morning and said, oh, what a mess. Why bother? I know I'd burn it. I don't even want to try to fix dinner. I'd screw it up some way. It's not the solution to the problem. The problem is the house is a mess and dinner isn't ready. What am I going to do to fix the problem? Everything that works 
like a haystack. It's a mess. What am I going to do? Quit? No. Figure out a plan and fix the problem. That's what we have to do as Christians. Fix the problem. 1 Corinthians 12, boy, I don't dare dive into this and take two hours, but he describes the body here, the human body, and uses it an analogy that we're to be one body as is Christ. Verse 13, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. The body is not one but many members. And we can't say, I'm all on my own because the foot and the eye and the hand and, you know, the story here. But notice verse 18, But now God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it pleased him. So it doesn't matter what you are. If you're a hand or a foot or a nose or a nose hair. It doesn't matter what you are. God put you where he put you. And you are to be content with what you have. And not saying, I don't want to be a nose hair, I want to be an underarm hair. I'm getting ridiculous, but... I want to be some other part of the body than what I am. You know, that has caused so much trouble in Worldwide Church of God. Because people were not content with whatever they were. Most of them wanted to be the mouth. They're men or the tongue, or the brains. But what if you find your... We don't know if we're a toe, do we? It's hard to determine. There are some parts of the body maybe you could determine, or somebody else would think you were. We won't go there. But it's hard to know just what part of the body God made you, isn't it? But whatever it is, be content and be thankful that you're part of the body. And then try to work together with the rest of the body so that the body doesn't hurt. You know, a sore toe can make the whole body hurt. A sore finger can make the whole body hurt. A sore head can make the whole body hurt. We're part of the body. We're not here to be selfish. We're here to make the body operate and function properly. As we age and get older, we find that different parts of the body don't work as well as they used to anymore. The knees hurt. The fingers get arthritis. You know, the eyes don't see as well. The nose, the mouth, the ears, they don't work as well as they did. And we find we stumble, we fall easier, we get hurt easier, we break quicker because the bones don't, aren't as strong as they used to be the body begins to fall apart and the, the pieces don't work together as well anymore. They're not as coordinated. We start out uncoordinated, then we get a little better, and then as we get older, we get worse again. God set up this process so that we might learn. Who's in charge? You know, we've got to, be, got to know. Who's always in charge? Who gets to make the decisions? Well, I'm in charge around here. Or so-and-so's gone, I'm in charge. Or however, you know. We've still got a lot of worldwide left in us, brethren. 
We may not wear the purple armbands as deacons anymore, but there are people who still aspire to be a different part of the body. Won't be content. You know, my hand needs to be content to be a hand. It shouldn't just slap my head all the time because it wants to be the head. That begins to hurt after a while. Now I'm awake. I don't know about you. We don't have anything else to do, do we? Ooh. There are many members, yet one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, or the feet, or whatever. The point he's coming down to, verse 25, that there should be no schism, no division, no difference, no lack of coordination in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. You are the body of Christ and members in particular. And he set some in certain offices. He did that. So be content in whatever state you find yourself. Don't wish you were something else or be worried about whether you're in the position you ought to be in. He put you there. Uh, well, I'll skip a couple. I want to, I want to cover one more. And that's in John 17. Because this is the main one, the biggest one, the last one, the most powerful one, is John 17. Here is the prayer of our Lord and Savior to his Father about us. This day pictures becoming at one atonement, so that all sin is removed. You see, God hates sin, and he won't live with sin. So to become perfectly at one with him, it's a simple matter of removing all sin. Anything that is ungodly has to be gotten rid of, cut away, demolished, destroyed, so that only godliness remains. That's the goal and the purpose of God is to get us to where there is no ungodliness, no sin in us. Only then can we be totally at one. Now I make analogies about us and about how we would be perfectly, fitly framed together and of one mind, one thought, one doctrine. It says, if any man come and bring not this doctrine, don't receive him. Don't let him in your house. Don't eat with him. A drunkard, a complainer, a whiner, a railer, we're not to even eat with, not to be around, not to fellowship with, don't have them in our house. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 John 2, or I mean 2 John, verse whatever the verse is. We are to get away from unholiness. If people are living an unholy life, we are to stay away from them. We're not to have them in our house. And that means by email, by phone, by letter, or any other way. That's allowing them in your house. Well, they actually set over their foot over the threshold is neither here nor there. It's your mind that is the problem. And if you allow people to come into your house bringing things that are ungodly, then 
that has to be stopped. It has to be cut out. We're to become at one with God, and that means no sin. All right, let's examine this. These words spake Christ and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. And he was to be glorified. I want to skip down a little bit. This is all good, and we read it on Passover. But let's go to verse 11. Now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. I mean, he wasn't in the world anymore. He had fought it. He had overcome the world. And he was going to his Father in heaven, but he was concerned about you and me, those of us who are left in this world. And he knew what it would be like. He knew what we would face with our own human nature and Satan and the world around us. These are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your own name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. So he is stating to the Father that he wants us to be one like he and the Father are. There is no shadow, no turning, no disagreement, no dissension, no argument, no doubt, they are totally, completely joined together in purpose, in will, in action, and in thought. And that's the way he wants us to be. This day pictures us becoming totally at one as they are. That's what we're here for. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those that you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except Judas. And now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. <coughs> He's telling us what he wants and how he wants it to happen. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We are probably still too worldly, if the world likes us. Because if we truly are of God, they will hate us. And we should accept that. And we should live with that. And not care that they hate us. We want God to love us. And we want to love each other. They are not of the world. Wait, wait a minute. Uh, verse 15. I pray not that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. That's where we have to go. Find God's way, his thoughts, his reactions, and his word. And be like that. That's how we become at one with him. As you've sent me into the world, and so have I also sent them into the world, for their sakes I sanctify myself. I set myself aside, he said, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. He set himself aside to die and have his shed, blood shed that we might come to him through the truth and be just like he and his father are. That's our goal and our purpose. Be like they are. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That's you and me, not just the apostles. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us exactly like God and his Son. That the world may believe that you have sent me. They're supposed, this world is supposed to be looking at us and in that recognizing that God the Father sent his Son to this earth. 
They're supposed to see Him in us. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Perfectly, fitly joined together in mind and in judgment. That is a goal and a purpose that we need to fulfill. Like I say, let's not be discouraged because it isn't here today. Let's go to work on it so that it's here tomorrow. That's the key. Don't be discouraged. Be energized. Take on His glory. I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. There's the, the world is supposed to look at us and see Emmanuel the King. That's what they're supposed to see when they look at us. No liars, no thieves, no adulterers, no fornicators, no drunkards, no revilers, no backstabbers, to use a different word. Father and the Son don't stab each other in the back, do they? No. Father, I will that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. He wants us with him. That they may behold my glory, which you've given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And he wants us loved the same way. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it that the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He wants so much to dwell in us, but he has to have a clean vessel. He has to have a pure heart. He has to have a oneness of mind and a unity so that we can all be one together. That's what he desires to dwell in. We have to prepare the vessels so that he can be one in us. And the way we show him that is that we become perfectly, fitly joined together at one in God. Satan is going to be sent into the wilderness. Christ's blood was shed so that all our sin might be removed. And with all sin removed, then we're at one with him. That's the meaning of the Day of Atonement totally at one, married to Christ. Not any thought any different than that which he has and desires and is. We will never have a fight with our husband throughout all eternity. Hard to imagine, isn't it? Never have disagreement. It's beyond human. It is beyond human. It requires the power, the spirit, of God. And it requires practicing here with one another. Let's don't look upon it as, well, I can't do this and I can't do that. Let's look upon it as, here is my opportunity to treat this person the way I'd want to be treated and the way God would want to treat them. Here's my opportunity to become at one with God and to qualify to be the bride of Christ. I mean, it's easy to look at our sins and get discouraged. But no, let's be encouraged and be optimists. God hates negativity. God hates, 
a negative approach. God hates fear. God hates worry. God wants us to be solidly positive in the way we approach life and approach each other. And encourage and strengthen and help one another to be what we need to be. And how we treat one another is how he's going to judge how we would treat him as our husband. You know, we need to be putting our best foot forward now. So he will say, I want to marry that one. That's what this is all about. So let's accept this day as the finality, the fulfillment of that time when we're perfectly joined together with the Father, with the Son, and with the rest of the bride. This isn't just you and me, Lord. If we're part of the bride of Christ, we're going to have to live with each other forevermore, aren't we? Do we stop and think about that? Well, I can just get along with these people till I'm in the kingdom of God and I'm the bride of Christ and then everything will be all right and I'll get along fine with him. No, we've got to live with each other for eternity, too, as well, as part of the bride. This is the practice ground. This is the engagement period where we make adjustments. We learn to live together so that when the marriage comes, we will then be in perfect harmony. That's what this is all about here. So keep the day of atonement, and let's be as close to God and close to each other as we possibly can. And if we don't think alike, let's figure out why, and let's get where we do think alike. That's what being one is all about.